Well, let's pray as we get into the scripture. Lord, you've called us to holiness and righteousness, Lord. We belong to you now. I thank you for folks like Daniel who exemplify for us, who walked out, displayed for us, just an example of the kind of people you call us to be. And I just pray this passage would be an encouragement to that end for all of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Palm Sunday, and I love Palm Sunday, and even though we're not a liturgical group, so to speak, uh, we have generally gone over some passage in the past about Palm Sunday specifically. We're not doing that this morning. We're continuing in Daniel, we're in Daniel 6, verses 6 through 10. So my apologies if you're disappointed about that. I've had a good time in Daniel. I hope you have too, and I'm encouraged about the passage we'll be looking at this morning. If you remember in the beginning of chapter 6, <clears throat> world empires had changed, and the Babylonian Empire had given way to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so that empire's second-ranking king, Darius, is reigning for Cyrus the Great from Babylon, you remember he's divided up the kingdom and he's got a leader, a satrap over 120 provinces. He's got three commissioners over them so that he makes sure he gets everything coming to him. It says so that he wouldn't suffer harm. His taxes are collected on time and all that good stuff. And one of those three commissioners was our friend Daniel. You remember he's at the end of his life. He's an old man. He has seen kings come and go. This is his second empire that he's going to help rule. He has so distinguished himself under Darius, that Darius now is going to make him the one key leader under Darius himself, just like Joseph in Egypt, to oversee the whole country. You remember we talked about the response of his fellow leaders was envy. We talked about the path that envy led them and the fact that it would lead them to destruction in the end. That brings us to our passage this morning at verse 6. So they've conspired, they've got a plan. They said, we know we won't catch him in anything at work. He's too faithful, so we'll have to do something related to his God if we're going to trip Daniel up and get rid of him. And starting at verse 6, it says, these commissioners and satraps came by agreement. There's a small mob being ushered into the king's court. By agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever, all the commissioners of the kingdom the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Going back to verse 7, they come before the king and say, all the commissioners, prefects and satraps, have agreed on this great idea that we want you to implement. All the commissioners. This was a lie, wasn't it? We know one commissioner that wasn't consulted. But they say all the commissioners, that would include Daniel, have consulted, and we've got this great idea we think you should follow. So their proposal actually starts with a lie. And in this case, as is often the case, it's not how much of the truth they said. It's the little lie that was part of it that really would be the key component of what they've said here. So 
All the commissioners did not agree. All the commissioners were not consulted. But by putting it this way, it's like everybody that you count on to make decisions thinks this is a great idea. There's no opposition. We really think you should do this thing. So they're presenting this bold front to Darius that everyone that you count on thinks this is a good idea. There's no opposition. <clears throat> Darius is not a foolish person. He's a pretty shrewd guy to get to this level in the world empire of his day. He's not a stupid person. He's not an unwise person. He's used to dealing with lots of folks. Yet, yet, he seems to fall victim, if you will, probably to his own vanity, fed by the little flames and winds of flattery. Look at what they say. They're saying that we want to make this injunction so that everyone has to pray to you for 30 days. This sounds a little odd to us today, but remember in those days the king or the Caesar or the high ruler was often seen as a surrogate for one of the gods of this nation, whatever nation we happen to be looking at. So it wasn't all that unusual that you'd say, well, I'm, I pray to the king. And you remember we saw this in chapter 3, too, where Nebuchadnezzar had made an image and said everybody's going to worship this common image. This wasn't that unusual. It still appealed, no doubt, to the king's vanity. We're going to make everybody pay, uh, pray through to this king only. On the other hand, it was only for 30 days. And remember that the Medo-Persians, like the Babylonians, like all other cultures, prayed or worshipped many deities. If this had been an injunction for a long period of time, there would have been some trouble. They would have put all the uh, idol makers and what have you out of business. But it was shrewd because it was a short period of time. So it wasn't going to cause too much tumult, and it kind of went along with worshipping the, em the emperor or the king anyway, so... It was shrewd, but it certainly preyed on the king's vanity. And, you know, as I read this, we know where the story's going, but it makes me think, you know, anytime I hear words of flattery, I better look out. You know, all of us like to be complimented. We all want to think that we're good, we're very good, we're handsome, we're very handsome, we're good, better, best, etc., and so we like to be praised. We like people to say, you've done something well, I like this about you, etc. We've told our girls, if someone pays you a compliment, you just say thank you and, and you go on. You don't say, oh no, or oh gee, or what. You just say thank you and go on, and go on. And compliments are fine. But when you sense flattery, something beyond a genuine, brief perhaps, compliment, your radar should go up. What is going on here? What is this person after? Flattery always has some ulterior motive. So when you sense someone flattering you, be careful. Look out. Something else is coming. There's a commercial on TV. Have you seen it? Uh, one of the great Budweiser commercials where there's this robot. It's, have you seen it? Has no one seen it but me? Okay. There's a robot, and it's those robo-wars. This guy has chainsaws coming out of it and horns and everything. It looks terrible, you know, and, and he's, he's pitted against a little refrigerator that comes out, and it looks like it's a, a no, no contest, but the refrigerator door opens and a Budweiser is in there, and when the bad-looking guy goes to get it, the hammer comes out from the refrigerator and creams him, creams this terrible-looking robot. You know, that's kind of the thought here that that flattery, it's setting us up for something. 
And when someone starts flattering you, look out, something else is coming. He wasn't careful. This is a careful guy, but he wasn't careful. He listened to what they said. They appealed to his vanity through flattery. Listen to this out of Proverbs 7. A father's warning his son about harlots, women who would take advantage of his son. And listen to what he says. With many persuasive words, she entices him. With flattering lips, she seduces him. It says he doesn't even know that it will cost him his life in the end. There's a payoff. But the gal comes out, and boy, you're the greatest thing I've ever seen, and you're the one I've been waiting for, and on and on. And he wants to hear it, and he doesn't have moral discernment and judgment, so he believes it, and it costs him his life. And that's kind of the thought here. Darius has got this flattery thing going on, but he, his warning signs don't go up, and so he goes along with it. And what made this more important for him to be careful, remember in verse uh, 8 that once he signs this injunction, it cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. The thinking probably went something like this. The king is a demigod. He makes no mistakes. So if he signed a decree or a law, if he then rescinds it later, he's admitting error. I made a mistake, and they weren't going to do this. So once the law is signed, there's nothing that can take it back. So you can imagine... As the king, when I put my pen down to that document and sign it, I better be confident when I sign that there's no downside to this. They've overwhelmed him with numbers and flattery, and without thinking probably very much about it, he has signed this injunction. Look at verse 10. The throng has had their way. The conspirators have got what they wanted, at least short term here. Verse 10, we turn back to Daniel. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he knows about the document. He wasn't consulted to bring it about. He probably wasn't with the group when they bring it before the king. But when he knows the document is signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he, just stop there for a minute. Here's Daniel. He knows these guys are after him. They can't get him at work. He's too faithful. They've devised a plan to get him based on his relationship with his God. He knows that to remain faithful to his God will cost him his life. So now you put yourself in his shoes, and you've just heard it's been signed, and now I go to my house, my little quiet corner, and what do I do? You know, I think, man, I'm probably falling apart. I'm probably pulling the covers over in bed, and I'm hiding my head. Maybe I'm whining or crying, you know, Lord, poor me, you know, look what they're doing to me, and, you know, it's terrible. And it would be. It's, it's easy to joke about this today, but you know in reality as you and I face conflicts or trials, they're not funny at the time. We're, we're talking about a story here that happened so long ago we poke fun, but you can imagine the potential for just terror, just terror as you contemplate the reality of what it would mean for this sentence to be carried out on you, thrown to a pack of wild beasts. This would be ugly. It would be terrifying. So Daniel's heard, he knows what the document says, he knows what it means to him if he remains faithful to his God. So what does he do? Goes up to his house, windows are open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God 
as he had been doing previously. This is one of those key verses in the book of Daniel. It's one of the reasons why this guy is one of my heroes. He is one of the really preeminent characters or figures in Scripture of a godly man, a kind of a man we can look up to as an example of godliness. And this verse is one of the reasons why. This verse has a lot of similarities also to chapter 3. You remember when his friends are faced with the dilemma, do we bow to the statue? You remember they're on the plain, broad, flat place. The only thing standing is the statue. When the music starts, all the leaders representing all the nations have to bow down and worship, and there's just three blades of grass, three trees standing on that plain, and it's Daniel's friends. They had faced the same dilemma. If we don't obey the king, we're going to be thrown into a furnace. And you know, in chapter 3, there's no indication that they wavered, that they thought about capitulating. It's the same as Daniel here, faced with life and death, terrible, gruesome death. All it says is they were faithful. They, They kept standing. And in fact, when they stood before the king, they just said, hey, we're not doing it. We're going to remain faithful to our God. Not disrespectful, but firm resolve. And that's exactly what you see here in Daniel chapter 6. He is the same way. It looks like without missing a beat or even giving it a second thought, he does what he's always done. He does what he's always done. It says it was his habit. Um, I heard a guy teach many, many years ago, and he was talking about Peter, and Peter faced with crisis and dilemma in the New Testament. And he mentioned that Jesus had warned Peter that a trial was coming, so be ready. And Peter wasn't. He wasn't. He failed the test when it came, and he denied the Lord. But the guy's point was the time to prepare for a crisis is before the crisis gets there. Once the emergency hits, it's too late to prepare for the emergency. And I think the reason why Daniel in this chapter and his friends in the previous chapter were ready for the crisis was because they had simply been faithful all along. It says he continued to do what he'd been doing. So it was his faithfulness in good times, or easier times, if you will, that had prepared him to respond appropriately when the trial or the emergency or the crisis came. You remember in chapter 1, we said that probably at least one of the defining moments of Daniel's life was chapter 1, verse 8, when it said Daniel purposed in his heart He made up his mind. We said he drew a line in the sand. The very beginning of his life in Babylon, the beginning of his time in captivity, he had said, I will not dishonor my God. I will not give in to idolatry in any way. And we said that defined, there's no book of Daniel without chapter 1, verse 8. But chapter 1, verse 8 wasn't all there was. He made one decision Way back when, let's say he's in his mid-80s here, he made one decision maybe 60 years prior, but he had affirmed and reaffirmed that issue, that decision, every day since, three times a day. You know, sometimes you and I make a decision to honor the Lord, be faithful, whatever it is, whatever area of life, and we make that good start, And then we fall down. Or we make that good start and we're full of good intentions, but we don't carry through. And making the good start obviously is important and it's what we need to do, but it's not enough. We've got to go beyond that good start. And this is what Daniel had done. It was his pattern. It was his habit. He had reconfirmed that commitment every day. 
sins all his life. So that single initial decision was reaffirmed again and again. And in verse 10, which is what we'll spend the balance of our time looking at, we see that not only did he confirm that initial decision to honor God and remain true, but that he was a humble, praying, and praising person. This is what characterized his life. He was a humble, praying, praising, or thankful person. Uh, Back in verse 10, it says his windows were open to Jerusalem. You know, today Muslims always pray towards Mecca. They put their prayer rugs down, they face Mecca. Long before Muhammad, Daniel was praying with his windows open towards Jerusalem. I assume that when he prayed each time, he was going to the same window and he was facing Jerusalem. Now, just at an emotional level, we can say, well, he's facing his home. He's facing the place he was taken from as a boy or as a youth many years earlier. Uh, He's facing the place his family had been raised, and it would be emotionally appealing to face Jerusalem. Beyond that, though, I think part of what he's doing is he's trying to honor God by praying God's way. Listen to what Solomon had prayed a few hundred years earlier in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. When Solomon's temple was completed, the temple that now is in ruins in Jerusalem, this was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar uh, after Daniel was taken captive. When that first temple was erected, Solomon prayed, and this is what he said to God, Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. When your people pray towards this place, this temple, the city and the temple that you've identified yourself with, hear their prayer. He goes on in verse 36 and says, Solomon out of Second Chronicles, when they sin against you, and he doesn't say if they sin against you, he says, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. This is like Romans 3, we all fall short. It's not a question of if, but when. When they sin against you and you're angry with them and you deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. Daniel knew this passage and he's captive in a far off land. Solomon prayed and they pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name. That's what Daniel's doing. Then hear from heaven from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplication, maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. I understand with windows open towards Jerusalem and Daniel praying towards Jerusalem, he's coming to God God's way. He's following the prayer of Solomon that, Lord, when your people are captives and they turn to you in prayer and they face the place you set your name on, Lord, hear their prayer. That's what he's doing. He's coming to God God's way. We'll look later on in chapter 9. Great, great prayer in the Old Testament. Great example. But along this same theme, coming to God God's way, aware of what God had said about being captives and what God wanted to do and when he would do it. You know, today for you and I, coming to God God's way as Daniel was a little different. There's no geography for us here, is there? Jerusalem's not our capital anymore. You know, Jesus says that those who worship God now under this new covenant, they worship in spirit and truth. And Paul says that the church, not a building, but the church, the people of God, Christians, are the body of Christ and the temple of God. 
So when we pray today, we're not facing Jerusalem. We're not getting on rugs facing Mecca or any other geographical location. Hebrews 4 says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. God's not holding us to an ante room in Jerusalem or a physical building in Jerusalem to pray to. He says now under the new covenant, for us to come to God, God's his way, God's way is to go to his very throne today. Covered by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews is an epistle all about Jesus fulfilling all the Old Testament pictures and types, coming to God himself by his spirit in the name of Jesus. That's coming to God his way today. Daniel was going to God in prayer, God's way, facing Jerusalem, confident that with a repentant heart, facing God's place of promise, God would hear his prayer. We can do the same thing today, drawing near to God himself. Look at this second thing it says he did. It says that he knelt down. He knelt down. My wife and I were raised Roman Catholic, and if there's one thing Catholics know how to do, it's kneel. And, you know, it's kind of a little surprise when you go into Protestant church and there's no kneeler to pull down. You know, when we, we knew the mass, up, down, kneel, up, down, kneel. We had the routine down. Most of us under the Protestant banner, those who aren't Roman Catholic or high church, kneeling is something that's often foreign to us. But there is plenty of biblical encouragement for us to physically take a position of humility when we come before God. And that's exactly what Daniel's doing. He is physically assuming a position of submission and humility to God, the great high king that he serves. On one hand, I say, and I think we tend to say, you know, the position of my body is of secondary importance. What's really important is my heart. And I would say that's absolutely true. You know, if we kneel down outwardly, but we're standing up on the inside, or if we physically take a position of humility, but inside we're anything but humble, well, that's just a lie. That's hypocrisy. That's what we're not, not what we're talking about. But on the other hand, our body should reflect what's going on within. So for us who've come to know the Lord, to pray to him in a position of humility is a good thing. Jesus himself, God the Son, the eternal deity himself as the Son of Man knelt when he prayed to God the Father. As Son of Man, he assumed this position of humility or submission. This is a great thing. You know, you've got Paul telling in uh, 1 Timothy 2, he tells men, when you pray, lift up holy hands. They had a tradition of men raising hands when they prayed or praised. Physically, they were offering God up their hands. Sometimes in the Middle Eastern culture, this was a way of showing God, I'm not hiding anything from you. My hands are clean. My hands are before you. You know, the works of my life, so to speak, I'm offering them to you. I'm not holding anything back. Um, But we've got this encouragement throughout Scripture, whether it's kneeling, whether it might even be with your face on the floor, or if it's worship time, whether you're lifting your hands. David, when the ark was taken to Jerusalem, he was dancing before the Lord. He was honoring God with his body. I'm just saying Daniel assumed a position of humility and submission. He was worshiping God with his body. What he was doing on the outside reflected his attitude on the inside. That's consistent. We should certainly do the same thing. So it's good coming to God his way and coming in humility and submission. Daniel does as he kneels here. So be willing to honor God with your body. 
Look at the third thing he did. It just says he prayed. He prayed. This sounds simple, and it is. If we define that, though, what does that mean, he prayed? Probably, we don't know because it doesn't tell us, but maybe he's praying, Lord, strengthen me for the trial ahead. You know, help me. I assume when it says he prayed that it's either pouring out to God what he's concerned about, talking to God about the situation he's in, and probably also asking God for help. You know, giving God these things that, Lord, it's bigger than me. I need your help in this thing. So he's praying, pouring out his heart, talking to God about the situation probably, probably asking for strength to remain faithful through to the end. Maybe he's also praying for Israel, for the Jews. We'll see later on in a couple of chapters. He knows probably at this time that Israel is going to go back to the land, and he's excited about this, God taking them back out of captivity to Jerusalem. He may be praying for God's will to be fulfilled in that sense. He may be praying... Who knows about what? But the point is, he's giving God the things on his heart. He's probably asking God for the things he needs. So he's just praying. He doesn't stop there, though. Look at the fourth thing he does. Uh, It says that he praised. He praised, or he gave thanks. Now, again, we don't know for sure what he gave thanks for. We don't know the specifics of his praise. He could be thanking God for this grand life he's lived. He's been at the center of the world empires for the last 60 years. He's held prominent positions of leadership and authority. God has truly and richly blessed his life. He may just be saying, thank you, Lord, for this grand life you've given me. Or thank you for allowing me to be faithful. Or thank you for the promises. In chapter 12, we'll see promise of resurrection. Chapter 9, promise of restoration, national restoration. So we don't know the specifics, but we know that he's praising. He's not just asking but he's praising or he's, thank, he's thanking God. And again, put this in context. He assumes that he's going to be thrown in to a den of lions. And he's praising God. He's thanking God. I love this passage. Uh, Acts 16. This, I hope this sounds familiar to you. Acts 16. Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi. And they just get beat up bad. They get an official royal beating for their troubles of proclaiming the gospel in Philippi. And then they get thrown into the inner parts of a crungy old dungeon. What are they doing? Well, it says, Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Maybe they're whining, right? They're complaining to God about the situation they're in. They're praying. Well, they're singing hymns of praise to God. They've just been beat up. They're probably bruised. Maybe they're bleeding. They're in bad shape. And they're in prison. And they don't know what's coming. And at midnight, when good boys and girls are supposed to be asleep, they're praising God. They're singing these songs, psalms of praise to God. I find this remarkable. In their case, praise turns a prison into a palace. I think in Daniel's case, praise turns fear, perhaps, into faith. You know, when you praise God, it somehow turns your eyes from all the things that are going on around you, fear, anxiety, whatever the issues are you face. When you get your eyes off yourself and your situation and put them on God, it transcends you. It transcends your situation. It transports you beyond the things that are going on in your life. 
And really, I think it uniquely does that in a way nothing else can. It is good to come and pray, to kind of dump our load on God. God, I'm worried about this. I'm fearful about this. I'm anxious about this. Lord, I need your help with ABC. And all that's appropriate and a good thing to do. But stopping there is stopping too soon. This this continuing on in prayer to be thankful to God, to express thanks or praise to him for who he is, for what he's done or what he's going to do, it moves us out of ourself. It puts us into heavenly realms. It gives us peace when nothing else can. So he doesn't stop at praying. He continues on to praising. And I assume that's why you don't read a word of complaint or fear or anxiety about Daniel's trial here that he's given his care to God, he's praised God, and God's changed the way Daniel looks at life, the way he feels about the situation. It's transformed his situation by praising. And the last thing it says is, it was his custom, it was Daniel's routine. He wasn't doing something now for the first time that he hadn't done before. He just continued doing what he'd been doing all along. If you put that in context for Daniel, this would be like saying maybe that President Bush kneels down three times a day and prays. If you think about the workload Daniel had, he is one of three key leaders in an empire that spans the known world, if you will, of that day. He's a busy guy. He's got lots of demands. He's got to answer to the king for every nickel and dime from the provinces he oversees. So you can imagine the load, the workload, just the workload. Plus he's a Jew in exile. He's a captive in a foreign land. And yet he makes time for God three times a day to pray. Psalm 55 says, As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening, morning, and at noon I will complain or make my complaint, my troubles known to God, uh, and he will hear my voice. So here's this guy who's incredibly busy, but he's praying three times a day, every day. It's his custom. Martin Luther said that he had so much to do today, how can I not start the day with prayer? You know, many of us feel like, Lord, I'm so busy, I don't have time for you this morning. Lord, I'm so busy, I don't have time for you today. Well, Daniel was as busy as any of us will ever be. But it says he made it, it was his custom, it was his practice that he was praying conscientiously and alone with God three times a day. This doesn't mean he's not praying throughout the day, and this doesn't mean that if you and I take up a practice to specifically get alone with God three times a day and pray, that's enough. You know, the scripture says pray always, pray without ceasing, pray in the Spirit. It's just that he was consciously leaving everything else aside three times a day just to get alone with God and pray and be thankful to express thanks to God. Uh, As I've gone over this passage, it struck me that Daniel was practicing what Paul admonishes in Philippians 4 a couple thousand years later or 1,500 years later. Listen to Philippians 4. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's praise. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now think about Daniel. He doesn't complain about those low-down fellow commissioners who did him in. He forbears. This says the Lord is near. 
Daniel knows God is still working his program, and Daniel knows from chapter 12 he's got a resurrection and a future glorious role to fill in God's kingdom. He's entrusting himself to God because he knows God is still in control. He forbears. Be anxious for nothing. He's facing the lions. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. That's the prayer part. Lord, this is my circumstance. This is what I need help with. With thanksgiving, that's the praise, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, here's this great Old Testament example of exactly this passage lived out. He's coming to God. He's making his petitions, his complaints, his troubles known to God. He's praising God, and he comes away with this peace. It's a great, great example. It's occurred to me that almost any time we talk about prayer, the eyelids start to droop immediately. And the attention, you know, the, the attention meter goes from high to low. And almost nothing I can think of in the, in the Christian world sounds more boring to more people than prayer. We're going to talk about prayer today. Oh, boy. Um, you know, when I think about it, it's a shame. I suspect the enemy has something to do with that. Uh, when I was thinking about this, why is that? C.S. Lewis, as you probably know by now, is a favorite at our house. And in his book, The Great Divorce, you got this scene. The book opens with these residents of hell. And if you've not read it, I, I highly encourage it. Anyway, they get a day trip. They get a day pass. They get on a bus and they get to go from hell, this gloomy, rainy, dreary place, up to heaven. They get to take a tour of heaven. And if they want, they can stay. So these residents of hell go up to heaven. And it's not what they expect. It's brighter than they expected. It kind of hurts their eyes. Not only that, but they get off the bus and the grass hurts their feet. The grass is so hard, it hurts their feet. And one of our guys goes up and there's a flower petal on the ground and he tries to lift it up. Well, he can't budge it. The flower petal is so heavy that he's perspiring, breaking out in a sweat as he tries to move a single petal. He can't budge it. And as he sees these other residents of heaven coming towards them, they look like giants. And they look like kind of solid titans, like we would think of the Greek gods. But when he looks at the residents from hell, they're ghosts. They're transparent. You can see right through them. And it's this sense that when they've come, these shades have left, heaven, or left hell and come to heaven. Heaven's the real reality. And by comparison, their puny, meager lives, they're just shadows and just shades. But heaven's the reality. And one of the characters in the book chooses heaven. It's a great part. Read the story just for this one part. One of the characters chooses heaven. And when he does, he's transformed from this pathetic shade to this incredible creature. And as he heads into heaven, further into the heavenly ground, uh, it's all further up and higher in or higher up and further in. In other words, as he goes, he realizes it gets bigger and brighter and better all the way through. And when I think about prayer, that's what I want to think about. That when we're praying, we're not talking about 
a practice, a religious exercise that you and I practice in some dark corner at home by ourselves. Because in reality, if prayer is communication with God, it's simply talking to God. That's what it is. So the talking part, that's normal. But it's who you're talking with. It's who you're with. That's the life-transforming part. That's the shade being in heaven. That's where in prayer, we're not just talking. We're not going through a ritual or a routine. We're meeting with the God of the universe, the author of all life, the God of all peace, the one who set this world spinning in motion and who's going to consume this world in fire and start a new one and a glorious one. You see what I mean? Prayer, when we, if you throw away that word, substitute with something else. When I meet with God to talk with him, I'm leaving mere life. I'm entering heaven. Hebrews 4, that passage, we're entering the throne room of grace. God's throne room in heaven. So we're meeting with the author of all life. We get to meet face to face, as it were, with him. So prayer shouldn't be this drudgery but prayer should seem like a privilege. It's not a, this work, this effort that I kind of just labor through, but no, I'm meeting with God himself. That's what it should be about. So for Daniel, you know, we might read about a guy who's praying three times a day and we think, what a bummer and what a boring life. But you know, when you read about the Daniels, that's not what you hear. And when you read about various other saints or Christians down through the ages who've devoted significant time, a lot of their life, to prayer, again, I think we tend to think how boring. For them, this was life at its best because when they were praying, they were with God. They were with God. They were in the real reality. They were enjoying in the real work with the God, the mover, the prime mover, the cause of all good things and all history and the summation of all things. They're with God himself. And if you think about it, uh, as a Christian, we have a few ways to really enter into God's presence. We can spend time in his word. He says he promises to reveal himself to us as we read his word. We can pray. We sit down and talk with him. And I would suggest the third is that when we worship, we experience God in some unique way. And and, uh, Jesus affirms that in the New Testament. So here are these three ways that we as humans with feet solid on planet Earth can enter into heaven itself while we're still here. And prayer is one of these key components that should free us from the present mundane reality, if you will, but bring us into the very presence of God and into what he's about and what he's doing. So Daniel didn't lead a boring life. And when faced with trials... The life he'd had with God all along sustained him. His faithfulness all along served him well here. He gets alone before God. He comes to God God's way, humbly, pouring out his needs to God, making his request, and then praising. And he's he's good to go. And as we'll see in the rest of the story, as you know, there's not a word or a murmur of complaint. And if you read uh, a good book that Christians uh, maybe read less of today, but Fox's Book of Martyrs has incredible stories of Christians facing one kind of persecution or another 
and facing it with absolute peace, confidence, rest, assurance, you name it. And it was for the same kinds of reasons. These were folks who simply had met with God. Their confidence was in God himself. And when the trial came, they were ready because God strengthened them for it. They, they had met with God and they were ready for whatever came. So when we think of, of life and prayer that way, to meet with God, this is, this is reality. This isn't drudgery. This is freedom. This is the best thing, one of the best things of the trio that we can do. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we know John 17, 3 says that real life, eternal life is to know you and your son, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, whether it's because of trials, as Daniel faced, or, Lord, whether it's just another day in the life, as we all face, Lord, to spend time with you, to come before your presence, that is life itself. Lord, free us from misconceptions. Free us from satanic lies. Free us from dullness of heart that would keep us from just being at liberty to spend time with you in prayer. Thanks for Daniel's great example and the encouragement it is of coming to you your way, of coming humbly, Lord, of praying, giving you the burdens of our heart and of praising you. And Lord, I know as I face difficulties in life, it's the thought of your future promises that makes me uh, get through some of these things, Lord. It's the knowledge that you're coming back, that you'll make all things right, that you'll reward us for faithfulness now, that makes it all seem okay now. Lord, for each one of us here today, just in this quiet moment, help us to give you the things that might be weighing on our heart, concerns, worries, fears, sins. Confess those things that would keep us from you. Thanks that in Jesus, in his blood, in his death and resurrection, we have rich, rich entrance into your very presence. And thanks, Lord, that prayer is short-term, that we'll see you face-to-face soon. And the shades of this day and this life will be gone forever, overcome by the greater reality of your personal presence. Lord, we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.